Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you are engaging in that ethical wrestle, you are at your most human because you're going beyond instinct or desire or habit, all of the things that other creatures have, and that's part of our animal nature, and you're doing the extra bit that makes us human, which is transcending that to make a conscious decision. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. I think I've said this here on Wild before and perhaps a few times. If I were to pin the ills of the world on one predominant cause, it would be the deficit of discerning or you might say ethical thinking that's going down as a practice, as a port of call for solving problems, as a bulwark against inequalities and cruelty. Today, Ethics is rarely discussed or taught. We don't have ethical leaders or leaders talking out ethical principles as they make big decisions on our behalf. I've also said this before, the moral umpires, you know, those institutions that would help us and guide us in ethical thinking have been kicked off the footy field of life and right when we need them most, right when the game of life has got more complex, more uncertain and and more precarious. And so we are effectively playing a game with no boundaries and no rules. And all of this feels very pointless and aimless and dangerous to many of us. This is what some are calling in various philosophical and economic circles our metacrisis. So here in Wild, I often try to get philosophers on to almost sell in discerning thinking, you know, to make it sexy again as a practice like meditation and, and cold baths or something. And the guest today that I've invited on is arguably Australia's leading ethical philosopher, and I would argue he's the most impactful and committed. Dr. Simon Longstaff finished school at 16, but he went on to complete a PhD in philosophy at Cambridge. He then returned to Australia determined to get Australians engaged in ethical discussion. And for 10 years, every second Tuesday, Simon would put out a circle of 10 chairs in Sydney's Martin Place and invite people to come and sit and talk to a philosopher in the tradition of Socrates. This then led him to heading the Ethics Centre, a not-for-profit that works with big business to assist them in making better, more ethically courageous decisions. And it's in fact the only organisation of its kind in the world. He also co-founded the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which disrupts the status quo with truly uncomfortable stuff via speakers such as Sam Harris, Pussy Riot and Slavoj Zizek. 
He's also a fellow of CPA Australia, the Royal Society of New South Wales, the World Economic Forum, and he's an honorary professor at ANU's National Centre for Indigenous Studies. He serves on various boards advising corporate Australia on ethical considerations from Woolworths to Nestle to Cricket Australia, and he's actually their ethical commissioner. And he's on the board of Mind Medicine Australia, which pushes for psychedelics as a treatment for mental health conditions in this country. But his entry into philosophy, into the world of philosophy, was via a very harrowing childhood experience, which honestly, I haven't been able to stop thinking about. When he was five, his mother was forced to make a terrifying ethical choice when she was pregnant with her youngest child, Simon's youngest brother, the implications of which, you could say, went on to define Simon's life. Now, I followed Simon's work for many years, and I'd earmarked him as a human I wanted to meet one day. So a few weeks back, I cold emailed him, and he agreed to meet for a chat. We followed up with this interview, which was recorded at the We Are 8 studios in Sydney. We might start with, I guess, an early encounter that you had with ethics. You were very young, and I hope you feel comfortable maybe sharing the story of the decision that your mother had to make. My mother had been pregnant with three children, and she fell pregnant with a fourth child and was told by the doctor that should the pregnancy proceed, then she would die, Mm. and the child would probably die. And yet she was a very devout Roman Catholic and believed that as a matter of conscience, there was this issue as to whether or not her life should take precedence over the child, being at least given the opportunity for life and potentially baptism. And that was partly because in her worldview, an unbaptized child would go into what Catholics then believed, but no longer do, a state called limbo. She then wrote an anguished letter outlining this to her sister. And as she was writing it, she was talking of the husband she loved and the three children she loved. And the decision to proceed with the pregnancy, in a sense, would be a decision to end her life. And yet there was still this matter of conscience weighing on her. And at the end of the letter, she describes me having been there by her side, probably colouring in or scribbling on Mm. notepaper. And she posted the letter and then decided later that she would proceed with the pregnancy. And the effect of that was that, as predicted, a year and a day after the birth of my brother, Angus, she did die. He didn't. He was in a humidity crib for some considerable period and is still alive to this day. When you're seven, it's a pretty profound moment to lose your mother to death. And it throws up a whole lot of questions. You yeah. know, why us? Was it something? I didn't even know about the decision she'd made until I was well and truly into the job I now do. So I was, you know, into my 30s when an aunt who had a copy of the letter showed it to me. And she was interested that I'd end up working in the world of ethics, yeah. where exactly these kinds of decisions are debated and resolved. And she wondered, I suppose, was that just a, an accident or had I known about it, which I hadn't? And so what wonders about is maybe maybe something did pass between us. Maybe I felt something at the time or maybe she said something in her anguish. Maybe it was just that the kind of calamity as it was and its uncertain provenance 
made me wonder about you know, the universe and justice and a whole lot of other bits and pieces. Anyway, I ended up in exactly the place where she could have come. Oh, that's the other thing she said in the letter. There's nowhere to go. She couldn't talk to anyone about it, which is why she was writing to her sister. And now we offer a service where someone like her could come called Ethicor, which is a free national service, the only thing of its kind in the world, where she could come today and she could pick up a phone or go online and book a call and she'd be able to talk to someone mm. trained by us who would take her through the process of making a decision. If you were taking that call, how would you guide someone like your mother? Like, What are some of the ethical principles that could be brought into something like this? Well, there's both a process and a framework. And so a little bit about the process. Firstly, there are questions about trying to be clear about exactly what it is you are facing as a dilemma or an issue. And with that, one of the most important questions is what are the facts? Of course, choosing facts itself is laden with ethical significance because we constantly select amongst facts according to our own values. Mm, and bi- Some, cognitive biases as well. Biases, the, the unconscious elements, but there's also things which we, well, even our values we're not always fully aware of. And so there's a whole series of things around the process of you know, what are the facts, what are the assumptions, whose voices count in this, who, who actually matters, who's at stake. And then there's a business of developing options. You know, how could you resolve this? Some of them emerging from really wild, extreme possibilities, but nonetheless with a seed within them of a, a solution. And then the framework part is really about recognising that there are multiple lenses for looking at the same question, but we're usually unaware of these alternative perspectives, or if we are aware, only vaguely. And, and we have our own default settings. You know, if you ask 100 people, what should we do about X, whatever it happens to be, they'll say, well, tell me what's going to happen. I'd like to know what the outcomes are likely to be. And they'll typically have some kind of cost benefit analysis in mind where they want to say, well, the best outcome, the thing that produces the best results, that's the one I'll choose. A utilitarian approach. Yeah, exactly. Utilitarian approach, which is about, you know, maximizing whether it's preferences these days in preference utilitarianism or kind of pain versus pleasure and things like that. So greatest pleasure. For the greatest number of people. The greatest good for the greatest number of people. But that's only just barely 50% who do that. And yet, if you're in those shoes, you think everybody's doing it. There's another large group. Uh, that don't think that's a legitimate way of looking at all. They say, no, it's all about our duties or obligations. For example, if I've made a promise to someone, that has to be upheld, no matter what the consequences happen to be. And you, you can see an example of this, a classic issue is, should we use embryos for stem cell research, where the embryos will be destroyed as part of the research? And there's a group of people who are very confident in saying, yes, we should be able to do this because the consequences will include the alleviation of these diseases and suffering and things. And there are other people who say, no, I don't care how much good it's going to do. Say, God says that human life is sacred. You may not do it. So that's about duties. There's a third major group which says, well, neither of those approaches are right. You know, it's not about consequences. It's not about duty. It's about who you become. What kind of character you get? And have. what kind of society comes or who from we become a decision? As a society. And this mm. this is a view that goes back to Aristotle really, but it's like that we are made of wax or clay and each decision leaves a little imprint in the nature of our being. Now, those are the three kind of big types. There's other ones too, the ethics of care around a feminist perspective where it's not about rules or codes or duties. It's about relationships and who you care for. And there's a number of other things. And So what you do with this process is you say, well, let's have a look at this issue from all of those different angles and test what some of the options resonates and find, Mm. you know, maybe you adjust this one a bit here to get that effect. And there might be one that does good work in more than one of those categories. And so you move to a process where the person 
ultimately decides because it is ultimately their decision. But hopefully in a form which means there are no regrets. There's no going back and saying, as so often harms people, where they say, oh, if only I'd asked about this, or if only I'd thought about that. And so the ethical service, which is a remarkably positive response from those who use it, really positive response, in part gives you that no regret strategy where you've thought about it, and yet you still decided. I can see how that works, Simon. I'm somebody who thinks through every single decision from every possible angle. It's just been my nature from a very young age and it torments me. However, I've always been able to say to people, I don't think I've ever regretted anything Mm. because I do that moral wrestle in the first place. And so I can sort of settle with where things are at because it's the moral wrestle, it's the ethical wrestle that actually is the important part of coming to peace with whatever the dilemma might be. And also accepting that as human beings, in fact, it's a aspect of the universe that ethical perfection is not completely possible, ever possible maybe. But there are some matters where they are so evenly divided between competing values, truth versus compassion or something like that, that no God, no philosopher, no algorithm can produce an answer because there is no answer. Yeah, It's just perfectly balanced both ways. And therefore, you still have to make a decision, but in conditions of radical uncertainty. And that's a huge relief to some people like me. Others find it a, a tremendous burden. They say, oh, don't, you know, let's get rid of ethics. If it can't make me certain, I don't want it. Whereas I say, well, let's let ourselves off that hook. We don't have to be perfect. We just have to be sincere. We have to bring our skills. Absolutely. And we can be modestly heroic in our decision to still wrestle with things, even though there may not be a perfect answer. I think I can probably at this point even jump to a point that I've heard you make a number of times that I wanted to ask you about. And that is the difference between ethics and morality. And from what I understand, Ethics is that process that you've got to go through yourself, whereas morality is that handing over of the the wrestle to a third party, whether it's the church or a government or, institution. Or not engaging in it at all. I, I mean, okay. the, the constituent elements that we draw on in making our decisions out of which the world is formed are the same. There's values and there are principles, each doing slightly different work. Values about what's good, principles to do with what is right. Now, when you're born into a human family or community, you typically get given a little box which has already got these things prefigured in them. Sometimes those boxes are produced by religions. Other times they are dissociated from religion but a part of a culture or it's just something of your own family. But you you absorb these things and they become your own. And there are people who in the whole of their life perfectly happy to take what was ever in that box or how they might have adjusted a little bit and they apply it pretty much as a matter of habit. You know, They know mm. exactly what to do, when to do because it's very clear to them. They don't think too much about it and in some senses what they live then is a moral life because each of these little containers is a morality. So there's an Islamic morality as there's a Christian morality and a Jewish morality and all the other religions, Hindu, etc. And there are philosophical boxes with you know values and principles, lots of these things. And if you take one of those, one of these moralities and apply it, that's the moral life. But there is a different kind of life, the examined life, which is mm. the life of ethics, which is where you don't just take it and apply it as a matter of habit, but you actually seriously and consciously engage with the choices you have and you think about it and you say, why this value, why this principle, is it appropriate? And even if you affirm the moral framework, it's done with that 
very conscious engagement that is otherwise not evident in the more limited moral life. And we might say, oh, look, it's good enough that people are habitually kind or generous and truthful or whatever. But people like Socrates, who for me is one of the principal motivators for what I do, he makes a very profound point about human beings, that to be fully human, you have to wrestle. You know, you're, that's mm. what I was going to say, when you are engaging in that ethical wrestle, you are at your most human because yeah. you're going beyond instinct or desire or habit, all of the things that other creatures have, and that's part of our animal nature, and you're doing the extra bit that makes us human, which is transcending that to make a conscious decision. Yeah. It's it's an agility, it's an engagement. I think it was Socrates, wasn't it, who said that an unexamined Correct. life is is not worth living. I mean Correct. that he went to that extent. And I guess it begs, do you you know, you're a big fan of Socrates mm-hmm. and and the Socratic method or, you know, approach. Is that your take? Do you think an unexamined life is worth living at all? To understand what Socrates was getting at, and what I believe myself, is that to the unexamined life is not a life worth living for our form of being, human being. In other words, you can have a perfectly contented life without doing it. It's not that it's worthless, in completely worthless, but it's not ever going to be the fully human life that you could have lived. It's a bit like saying, I'll live in a house, but there'll be a one room I'll never go into. And so you ask, have you really lived in that house? You've lived in parts of it, but not the house as a whole. And, and to s- stick just with the moral life and not take that extra step to the ethical life, I think, is to miss out on what it means to be fully human. And therefore, I don't think it's worth living that kind of life when you had the capacity, because of the kind of being you are, to do so much more. Yeah, it's the thing that I think does distinguish us, as far as we know, from being another type of mammal on the planet. And therefore, it's extremely unique and it's extremely special. And if we're looking for a point to our existence, we can't help but turn to that uniqueness, you know, as a thing to hold on to. As you say, as far as we know, it may just Mm. be our lack of knowledge about other creatures. It's a very profound thing because... I mean, you can explain this. I mean, it's a this-worldly fact that we have the capacity. You don't need to do much to say human beings, unlike other creatures, can make this conscious choice. But why? Well, some people go back to religion and they say, well, that's because you were made in the image of God and endowed with free will. Others want to look at it in terms of one of the aspects about the quantum universe and how the mind and brain interface and Mm. quantum effects. Others want to look at just as a sociobiological effect. In a sense, that doesn't matter. But what it does matter is that the universe has produced something that can do this, which can reflect on its own existence, that can make conscious choices about its obligations, not just to others of its own kind, but to a planet, to other species, and to the universe itself. Whether that is just taken to be a a bald fact as an emergent property of the universe and something to wonder at, it nonetheless means it's precious. That's right. Because it's an aspect of that universe which shouldn't be discounted as unimportant. Our ability to also comprehend our finiteness is also considered unique to the human experience, and I think that also feeds into our The knowledge that we're going to die. That's it. Simon, I'm wondering whether the fact that everything seems to be sped up at the moment, there are existential crises just bludgeoning us, they're looming, and existential risk is obviously an ethical matter as well. Does that make you even more aware of this preciousness, even more aware of the need or the desirability of examining one's life and being thoroughly engaged in it? The most powerful force on this planet is human choice, and it's become more powerful 
with every generation because of our capacity through science and technology to have an impact for good or for ill upon everything that exists. And with that, of course, comes increased complexity and humans generally do not like complexity. Um, Hence the fact that we've set up institutions to make ethical decisions for us in the form of morals. Yep, but we can outsource it like that. Uh, in mm -hmm. fact, the most radical outsource is to go to the fundamentalist who says, look, you don't have to worry about it. You know, it's okay. You don't have to make all these complex decisions. We'll do that for you. We'll just tell you what to do. And the fundamentalist, whether it's in religion or politics or science or whatever it happens to or be. Or capitalism. Yeah, I mean, any, any of those things where you're told you don't have to think about it can be a great relief to some. The other response is hedonism. You know, let's all get drunk and maybe someone else will have sorted it out when we sober up. So abandon all ethics and morality. Yeah. So you just go into a, a world of unthinking custom and practice. In fact, you can do that very simply without any stimulants where you just follow a line habitually. Why do you do it? Oh, everybody does it like that. That's just the way we always do it. Or it's I don't fun. need to think. And that's why I say there's a heroic element to choosing to remain in that present state where you do reflect on what you do and take responsibility for the choices we make because it's so easy not to do it. And that's why it's modestly heroic, of course, because you have to do it with a degree of humility, knowing that perfection is not possible. And then there's a release that comes from that. But people hate that. And so, courage, moral courage yeah. as well, to be able to know there is no answer, to, to stay steadfast in the face of so much uncertainty. Do you feel that we are turning more to this rigid way of thinking right at a time when we're needing to become more flexible and more comfortable with the discomfort of uncertainty than ever before? Because uncertain times are ahead, so we're going to have to get used to it. Yet when we don't see the leaders, the ethical leaders showing us how to cope with this. This is my real worry. And there's a lot of economists and psychologists and philosophers calling it the metacrisis. This, the fact that we just don't have capacity to cope with the kind of the mess that we've made. And we have no leaders that are able to show us yeah. how to manage it. At the moment, there is a crisis of trust in institutions. And what we at the Ethics Centre call the ethical infrastructure of society is damaged and needs to be repaired. And it's just as important, although a lot of people don't recognise this, as physical infrastructure, roads, rail. People will spend a fortune on that and they think it's going to make things better. And technical infrastructure like the internet, blockchain and all the rest, get, again, it attracts a fortune. But the ethical infrastructure, which underpins all of our ability to make the most of those technologies, which only we will do if we trust those who are in charge, otherwise we will stop progress, even if it's to our benefit, that needs work and we don't invest in that. Even though the economics of it are clear now, we've had reports from Deloitte Access Economics in Australia showing that just a 10% improvement would generate an additional $45 billion every year. That's billion dollars every year. Is that improvement in, in ethical or better decision-making? In, in ethics, mm. in, in, in the quality of ethics in our country, our ethical infrastructure. What we tend to do at the moment is to take a complex world and try and make it more simple than it ever can be, when instead, again, what we should be doing is investing our capacity to deal with complexity. And there are ways to become better at dealing with it. You know, we can increase our capacity but again, we don't do it. We think, oh, no, we'll just we'll simplify, we'll simplify. We'll stay so, nice and cosy in this binary well, world. Yeah. yeah, we simplify it to a point where it bears no resemblance to the reality. And then, of course, our ignorance of the world doesn't tame it. It, it, it comes and gets us. It, it, it does that. So we are making two fundamental errors in terms of how we invest in our capacity to address a genuinely complex, genuinely threatening, and also genuinely 
amazing opportunity. I mean, you could all this could be turned around. We could have a country like Australia. My God, it's on the on the cusp of being the most prosperous nation the world's ever known. But it's going to have to make changes, and it's going to have to trust people to make that transition. And my concern is that we don't invest in doing that. In your assessment, is Australia sort of on par with the rest of, let's say, the Western world, or are we particularly bad at this kind of thing? Look, I think we we don't value the the world of ideas in the way that other people do. So we find it harder. We actually do quite well. I mean, there's some amazing things that have emerged out of Australia, not least something like our own Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which is a world-leading forum for ideas. Not that you had an easy run of it in the sense no, that it's, no, you know. It has but- its moments, but it's there for a very serious ethical purpose, which is to push away at the boundaries which people are wanting to constantly close so that you can keep as large a space in the middle for reasonable people to engage and to be safe, to encounter things that might even offend them. You know, that, that's another important thing to do. But so we do it. But that's against a background where if you really want to get Australians excited, talk about sport or something. Um, mm, real estate pra- prices? Yeah, things like that. <laughs> the idea that you get really excited about a major thinker or that you'd engage in debate, we'll do it, but it's not the national metier that it is in other countries where they yeah. really jump in and say, wow, this is fantastic. Let's get into it. Yeah. There's a distinct anti-intellectualism and that's something we talked about that first time I met you. I feel it and I think it's really going to hold Australia back. Do you feel the same way? Do you feel that we're in danger of being left behind if we continue with that she'll be right anti-intellectual approach? Well, see, I have a, a mixed view about this. I've worked um, in my life, you know, I was a cleaner and then a safety officer on a manganese mine in some of the most intensely- in an indigenous community, wasn't it? You I was up in- on Groot Island mm. as a result, most importantly, kinship ties with the Anandaliakwa people. But the point I was going to make is that some of the conversations I had with people who'd never been to uni, they were fitters, truck drivers, whatever they had to do, rehab, they were some of the most rich and engaging intellectual conversations. So I think what we do in Australia is that we probably- underestimate the capacity and interest of Australians in general from all walks of life to really get into this if you present it in a way which is inviting and it's not a whole lot of people with pointy heads sitting up on a stage or, you know, in a uni or something like that. I think people really are very good at this in Australia. And I know that Australians, contrary to what a lot of people think, actually change their mind in response to good arguments. I've seen that time and time again. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
Well, look, why don't we move to a couple of, I guess, hoary issues that are on the agenda at the moment that Australians and beyond might be wrestling with. Look, cancel culture and free speech and all that kind of stuff, it goes backwards and forwards. We hear it constantly. You've got personal experience. The Festival of Dangerous Ideas, one of your speakers almost got cancelled. There was an attempt by a government official to cancel one of your speakers before he'd even read the book or contacted you to discuss mm. the theme. It was a it was a speaker who writes about the history of bestiality. Amongst other things. Amongst yeah. other things. But yeah. that a was historian. The historian, that's right. What are some ethical considerations in all of this? What did you go through when you tried to defend having this speaker at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, just as a, as a sort of a, a workshop point for well, this I issue? Mean, the starting point when I would ever defend things is firstly, what's the truth? And so when people are saying things which are untrue about a speaker and causing them to be attacked on social media, it's very troubling. And secondly, I go back to principle, and I don't believe that the commitment to free speech means you can say anything. For example, I've seen how in human history, free so-called, some things that have been said, for example, denying the equal humanity of one group or another because of their colour, religion, whatever, has unleashed the hounds of hell. Some of the most destructive, perverse things humans have ever done to each other have been because of people making those sorts of claims. And to say, oh, well, you should be able to free, to deny the humanity of another person, to say they're not fully human, to incite violence. No, that's not part of what it means to be free. But equally, I think there should be a recognition, and I owe this distinction to a colleague of mine called uh, Dr. Tim Dean. It's not just about being safe from things, but we equally need to commit to spaces where it's safe to engage, safe to engage with things that might offend you, about which you won't agree, where your curiosity is there and you might say, ouch, every time the person who thinks they're perfectly reasonable idea comes forward and articulates it. Well, in, in the case that, that we're talking about, I mean, that was in the context of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which I've said is a you know, profoundly ethical project to maintain as much open space as possible. So it will always push at the boundaries. It is what it says on the label. It's going to have some dangerous ideas. Be prepared um, when and, you turn up. And some people won't think they're dangerous because they agree. Others will think it's terrible. And pretty much everybody at some point will be finding something which they don't like. But you come there and you're safe to do it because that's the kind of thing that's there. And so when people criticise it, I'd want to say, well, I'll have the debate and, I, and I'll argue on principle for why we do what we do and the care that goes into curation. But please at least have the courtesy to be sure about what you do. Don't, don't shoot first and then aim later. I think a really big one that looms for Australians at least is, is this notion of a voice to parliament. Mm. You know, it's not without its detractors, in, including in the Indigenous community. There's all kinds of arguments to and fro. For those not familiar, we have a referendum that will be coming up here in Australia to vote for an Indigenous voice to parliament. And it stems from the Uluru Statement from the Heart that had a three-part invitation from Indigenous people to the rest of Australia to assist them in creating peace and improving conditions for their people. The voice to parliament, where do you sit on this from an ethical point of view? Let me first of all begin with what it's about. The Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, at a recent Gama said that there are three things that he wants to have in this quite modest amendment. Firstly, that there will be a voice to parliament. Secondly, that it will advise, not direct or veto, on matters directly related to the interests of Indigenous people. And thirdly, that the form of the voice 
will itself be determined not by the Indigenous community, but by the parliament. So a democratic process will determine it. So it's very modest. When you say form of the voice. How it's to be done, the fact that there will be one. What it will look like. Is going to be in the constitution. How it's done will be left to parliament to decide. So the parliament, our normal elected representatives, will make that decision. What is it really about? Really what this referendum is about is saying, We've got a constitution we've made and it sort of works well enough, but it's not complete. Yeah. Let's finish it. It's about going fundamentally back to saying, actually, there were a whole lot of sovereign people here. Yeah. We ignored them. We have ignored them. And what we're going to do is we're going to recognize them in our constitution, albeit in a different form, not because it's going to make things better off, but because that's what you do for sovereign people who were left out. And so it's not about saying, oh, well, because you're Indigenous, you get a special right. It's because you are part of that sovereign state that continues to exist that you get a right. It's a bit like you get to vote in New South Wales because you're a citizen of New South Wales, so you get to vote for the Senate. It's constitutionally significant because it's recognising that those people were here that terra nullius was a complete myth, that it's not that it was an empty continent, it was a richly populated continent with states and all the rest. Mm. And it's our chance now to finish the job of making a constitution that includes all the states, not just the few that were there. I mean, we, if we'd left out Tassie, they would have been really annoyed. If we'd, we'd have le- to go back we've, and fix we've, it. We've even got New Zealand in it, yeah. but we left out the local mob who were here before. So that's what it's ultimately about. For me, the decision for me to support it is, well, I feel that it's time we listened and I don't know that that's an ethical principle, but really if I was to pull right back, it's like we're going to like ourselves a hell of a lot more as a nation. I kind of feel that it's for the good. I think it's going to do all of those things, but the ethics in it lie in how can you live with yourself if you ignore the people who had every right to be considered as part of that cake as did the people living in Tassie or in New Zealand. You know, they had a right to be considered ethically. How do you justify ignoring these people who'd been there for 60,000 years and pretending that their states didn't exist? It's a matter of justice, but then the benefits of acting in a just manner by recognising this, by us all finishing the job together, everybody doing it, the benefits are that we will be so much more at peace with ourselves. We'll have a remarkably deep, foundation in our country that anyone can appeal to, irrespective of all the diversity and our our multiculturalism, the wonderful thing it is, can be tied back to something which is solid. I mean, this is the thing about the the tone of the statement from the heart, the Uluru statement, is that it's a hand that's been extended. it's an invite. Come and join us. Be part of this story. Be part of the 60,000 years. Be part of this. The wording's unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. And why wouldn't you? And, and what do we do then? Well, there are other things to be done too. There are issues to do with treaty and there's also, most importantly, truth, mm-hmm. which is, and no one should be afraid of truth. I mean, we always think, oh, if we're going to have the truth, it's going to be all terrible. It won't be. There'll be stuff that's marvellous, that's inspiring. Yeah. And there'll be some really shocking and terrible things too. But if it's about the truth, it's the whole truth. And the truth is never all good or all bad. It's a mixture. And we should say, be very comfortable with engaging with it. It's really about us growing up. And that's something that I think as humans, we love. When we have these moments where Do we're we rare, love growing up? I think so. I think when we have an awareness right. that we've gone to a, a stage in something resembling something successful, we're kind of proud of ourselves. We like ourselves a little bit more. I mean, I don't like getting older, but I do like the idea that I mature and my ideas and my ethics 
politics and my principles get a lot more solid. I find it interesting. Um, yeah, that's true. When we do the good things, when even, we evolve, even if we act in an entirely altruistic manner where it's for the sake of others, then we still nonetheless after that can see something of ourselves which is reflected in that good deed, which is better than being the opposite. What we were before, mm. the status quo. Simon, I'm intrigued that you haven't addressed this very big national issue from the point of view that the Indigenous people are really wanting to try to find a way to close the gap. You know, those 17 principles in the mm-hmm. Closing the Gap report, I think all of them either have stagnated or gone backwards. It's a terrible state of affairs. And I'm intrigued as to why you haven't addressed this from that lens. From Because that this position. is all linked together. So all the evidence suggests that the people who know best how to address the deficiencies are those who are on the ground themselves. And if you know okay. about the governance of Indigenous uh, A little, life, not enough. <laughs> then, well, everybody should know that all authority is local. It's complex and it's local. And so you need the people on the ground, given the capacity, to help shape the solutions to the things they face. And too often what we've done is we've poured huge amounts of money into programs which have looked sensible from our perspective, but don't necessarily incorporate the wisdom and understanding of Indigenous people. It's a bit like the manu- our landscape. You know, we look at the fires that a few years ago raged through, but this, this landscape was beautifully managed by people who had got to know it over all those tens of thousands of years. Mm. We, we, we import European notions, as I heard the other day, like the notion of wilderness, where you leave everything alone, whereas in Indigenous society, that kind of country is called sick country because it was always managed. We, we were too arrogant to sit back and listen, and they could have shown us how they had these extraordinarily fertile parklands that they'd managed over this time. So that ability to know what to do is there. Uh, It can be augmented by other things like Western science and all the rest, but so much of what comes from the voice is also about listening to the people. And I think that when that's done, then there will be real progress because how we address those gaps will be informed by those people who know best how to do it. And that would be a wonderful outcome. What about the argument that is often put forward by people who are against the voice, and some of them are Indigenous, that this very notion of sovereignty, the very notion of being incorporated into a thing called the Commonwealth is a very white principle once again. And so it's acquiescing to a system that is not, which is inherently problematic or inherently at odds with the culture of Indigenous people. So they're buying into a system, the very system that held them back for so long. Well, the concept of sovereignty, I don't think is a rejected so much. I mean, there are many people who say they want to claim their sovereignty and to hold it, by which they mean self-determination and things like that. We do not really live in a world and perhaps some people more than others for a longer period in which you unilaterally determine what you do because the world of humans has always been far more complex, including for Indigenous people. You just look at the interaction between Indigenous people in the South America and Central America and wherever you go. Mm. I mean, it's a, the idea that you just unilaterally do it. But there's been a system worked out in Australia. But to come to the question, I suspect that if we manage collectively to redress this deficiency in our constitution and Parliament comes up with a way to establish a voice, it's probably, I don't know, but it's probably going to include the ability of some groups, you know, to say, well, I don't want to be part of it. Mm. You know, I don't want my voice added to that because I feel that it's going to 
you know, it doesn't fit with my worldview. The important thing to go back to what I was saying before, though, is that being part of this constitution that we've developed in Australia yeah. does not involve ceding sovereignty. The states that made up the state, you know, the, the, the Commonwealth, never ceded their sovereignty. It's still sovereign states. Uh, New Zealand would not cede sovereignty if they came in. It would still be a sovereign state. It would just have a limitation on how its laws apply when they're inconsistent. And there would be no cession of sovereignty by Indigenous people if they wanted to join what the constitution might allow. But that's not to say they have to any more than New Zealand has to. They might, groups of them might say, don't want to be part of it. And that's Mm. fine. I've run over here, but I am going to ask you the last couple of questions, if that's okay. How would you sell in ethical thinking, that idea of reflective engagement in the wrestle of working through complex issues? How would you sell that in as a practice to really live by to people listening? Well, it would be by saying, firstly, what everyone knows to be true, that every decision they make shapes the world to some degree. Even small decisions in large numbers make big differences on this planet. So you don't have to be a Mandela or a Gandhi to shape the world. You can just fall the right side of a question and that will make a difference. And knowing that, I'd ask if you want to be responsible Mm -hmm. in how you go about it, because you are going to make decisions. You can do it just by habit or blindly or flopping or whatever or be pushed around. But if you want to be responsible in the sense to own the decisions you make and therefore your contribution to the world that flows from it, then you should start thinking about how to do that. And it's easily available to you and it can be fun. And it's a practice, right? It's a bit yep. like doing, I don't know, ice baths and yep. a certain type of breathing every day or meditation. Yep. You, can go, you can even look at, we're looking at things like ethics gyms where you can go and you can flex your ethical muscles and okay. build them up. Is there such a thing? Is there yeah, such a thing been, as an ethical I've gym? Wanting, I've been wanting to create them for years and we may be going to do it in the next yeah. year or so. I can just see a, a range of protein shakes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so to that end, if people are wanting to getting more engaged, they're sold by your message, um, what are some first steps? What are some practices, um, some practical stuff that oh, they well, could do? The easiest way to get into it, we've got 10 really fantastic little videos, animated introductions to ethics and some of the different ways of thinking about things, which you can find on the Ethics Centre website at ethics.org.au. Yep. If people want to get help because they're dealing with issues, there's Ethical. Again, you can get access to that through ethics.org.au. I'm so tempted to ring it. Like, I'm going to give it a go. Um, okay. I, I want to. I, was free, really, I really want to know how it works. Yeah. Free, it's confidential. Doesn't matter how wealthy or poor you are, it doesn't cost anything. And then if you want to read something. Yes, book then, recommendations. Well, there's, I mean, I'm loath to mention it in one sense, but my own book called Eth- Everyday Ethics yep. is a pretty good introduction and it deals with hundreds of ethical issues that arise in life, everything from what you buy in the supermarket to abortion and end-of-life decisions and presents and relatives at holidays, things like that. Or you, if you want to go a bit deeper into the, the genesis of it, at least in the Western tradition, I don't think you can go past a wonderful penguin publication called The Last Days of Socrates, Okay, which sort of shows what made me so excited about philosophy. Awesome. Hey, Simon, that was wonderful. You know, you've you've really have become the person I want to sit next to at a, a dinner party. You know how you get that asked that question well, from we now got, on. Are we going to do that one day, do you think? It, it, oh, let's do it. Let's create the dinner party ourselves. Yes. We can talk ethics all night. It'll be wonderful. Um, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you. 
So I hope you don't mind my continuing to try and sell in thinking or ethical discerning thinking by bringing on philosophers here on Wild. I do think it's crucial, especially in the current climate, that we learn to appreciate the art of thinking. And really, I do think it brings out our best selves. When I met Simon a few weeks ago, he asked what my theory was for why we were not engaging in this ethical wrestling as a culture. Like I said, he asked me the big questions back then. I told him my overfed dude on the couch theory, and some of you who have read my books might know about it. Our culture's opulence has seen us get too comfortable. We are so indulged. We've got so fat on convenience. You know, there we are with the TV remote in one hand, our phones in the other, ready to opine on Twitter or to order in whatever it is that we might need on Uber Eats or Amazon or whatever. We don't have to get up. In fact, the more we indulge, the more we can't get up. We just can't get off the couch. The Greeks used to call it acedia, which translates as a listless slothfulness that comes from too much indulgence and comfort. In fact, the Greeks posited it as the eighth deadly sin and indeed was regarded as the most dangerous or deadly because it can see us disengage from our very humanness. But it was subsumed into one of the other sins. I can't remember which one it was, and I think it's, there's some conjecture as to how that worked. Simon didn't comment on my theory, but I do now know that the Ethics Centre, of which he is the executive director, was started in response to the indulgences and excesses of 1980s Australia, which is kind of interesting. So now takeaways. I generally do takeaways uh, at the end of my podcasts. There are many, and yet really there's only the one, and that is to do the moral or ethical wrestle. This is the point. You know, big decisions are difficult, but it's in the practice of ethically toing and froing that we mature, that we become our best selves and our most human selves. When we examine our lives, to sort of paraphrase Socrates, we live a meaningful life. And when we hand the ethical wrestle over to institutions like the church or, or governments and allow things to be determined by moral edicts, well, it's not always a great outcome, right? Now, Simon mentioned a few starting points for learning how to do this ethical wrestling and to do it well, or to enjoy it more, or just to know that really awesome minds have done it before you. I looked at some of the explainers that he mentions at the end of the podcast. They're really awesome. They cover logical fallacies, double effect theory, Plato's cave, which Simon refers to in our conversation, how to navigate blame and so on. Now, I've put all of these links in the show notes. Now, if there are any philosophical principles or ideas or, or big minds that are wild that will help us love and save this precious life on this planet, then please do let me know about them. The best place is on Substack, and I'll put the link to that in the show notes. This is where I now do most of my online engagement. Anyway, we'll leave it there. Please stay wild and enjoy the ethical wrestle. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.